All right, welcome everyone to the Yogic Studies podcast. This is episode 25. Today I am joined by Dr. Edwin Bryant. Edwin Bryant received his PhD in Indic Languages and Cultures from Columbia University. He taught Hinduism at Harvard University for three years and is presently the professor of Hinduism at Rutgers University, where he teaches courses on Hindu philosophy and religion. He's received numerous awards and fellowships, he's published eight books, and authored numerous articles on the earliest origins of Vedic culture, yoga philosophy, and the Krishna tradition. These books include Bryant's translation and commentary on the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, published in 2009, and more recently its sequel entitled Bhakti Yoga, Tales and Teachings from the Bhagavata Purana, published in 2017. Edwin will be teaching for us here at Yogic Studies on a course entitled Bhakti Yoga, the Bhagavata Purana. This course will run live from July 5th through August 13th, 2021, and is available for self-study anytime after that. Edwin, it is a real pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the Yogic Studies podcast. Thank you, Seth. Thank you very much. Thank you for putting this together, these series of courses for the yoga community. Um, so I'm at your disposal. Thank you, Edwin. It's, uh, it's, it's been a, a treat to get to know you uh, these past few weeks as we've been collaborating, working together to put this new course together. Uh, I have been let's say, a long fan or even student of yours, having been reading and engaging with your work for many years, uh, particularly uh, your Yoga Sutras book, uh, but also your work on uh, bhakti and the Krishna traditions. So I'm very excited to have you here on the podcast to learn more about your, your research, your work, uh, as well as your background, uh, and then to share with listeners a little preview and a taste of this upcoming course on the Bhagavata Purana. So perhaps to kick things off, why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, tell us a little bit, uh, you know, in maybe an abbreviated version of, of your story and how you came to do this work that you do today. Sure. Um, well, I... I um... I've always been fascinated with India from a very, very young age. Um, I can even I can remember the you know, age of seven, sitting in the in the back of a of a school in England, watching a a film on the British Raj, and just being utterly fascinated not with the British Raj but with the landscape. So I've always had this deep, what perhaps Hindus would say, past life samskaric um, impulse and urge. Uh, to go to India. So as soon as I could, um, I did. I was one of these characters that hitchhiked when you could still across Asia and in the, in the late seventies. How, how old were uh, you when you first made it to India? You know, I would, I would have been um, early twenties. We were very, I mean like 20 perhaps. It was 79. So I'm so 22, mm. 20, 21. And I live, uh, so initially I lived for a number of years. At that time, British people didn't even need visas. So, um, and then um, somehow or other ended up in New York, not, not so much by intention as just life's quirks. Mm. And um, 
and at a certain point, I, I, I um, wasn't. I wanted to pursue my my studies that I begun in India of the philosophy and the practices. And I, but I, at that at that at that point, I was a little bit older, so I was looking for a way to support myself. What was and, uh, what was what yeah. was that first trip to India like at twenty two? I think you said in nineteen seventy nine. I imagine yeah, well, it was quite modern. different, it was quite different than quite you different. know visiting India today. Absolutely, there were tractors. There were, I mean, sorry, there were no, there were very few tractors. There were bullock carts, and, and I spent. I was in Vrindavan, the, the area sacred to Lord Krishna. So that's rural, small town India. Uh, I don't remember seeing any tractors at all. Perhaps the odd one futting about, but uh, the fields were still being plowed by the white, beautiful white um, oxen with the humps. Um, and, uh, so it was pre very pre-modern, uh, you know, there weren't so many, when we traveled, there were people that had never seen Westerners before. Mm. So it was quite, quite something. How did you end up in Vrindavan? Just by, uh, by chance, complete and utter chance. I was kind of a spiritual seeker in the beginning. I was somewhere, somewhere between a sadhu and a hippie sort of, you know, sort of concocting my own, <laughs> my own uh, way of, 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 I had no money. So it was just sort of, tra you know, traveling about. You could back then. People were very hospitable. And um, I just accidentally, you know, got off the train uh, at Matara. It was a long journey, and I just got fed up and got off the train. So anyway, it was one of those, it was one of those sort of uh, was providential uh, things. that uh, there, And then the bus, I got on a bus without really thinking about where it was going and it ended up in Vrindavan. So it wasn't intentional. At that time I was interested in Buddhism. I'd been I'd, I'd spent some time in Dharamsala in the north. And I was actually on my way down south to a kind of big Buddhist conference. So it was all very unexpected or you know unanticipated. For listeners but, who might not be as familiar, I mean what is what is the significance of, of Vrindavan and how is this kind of providential, you know, for for you in, in terms of the work that you ended up doing? Well, um, Vrindavan is the place sacred to Lord Krishna, uh, where Krishna spent his childhood life, and that's the Krishna of devotion. So the, the Krishna of, of Vrindavan Bhakti, the Krishna traditions that, are, that emerged very strongly in the 16th century, that type of Bhakti is centered around the Krishna of Vrindavan, but the early Krishna, not the Krishna of the Mahabharata, that's, the Krishna of the Mahabharata is not really an object of worship, obviously might surface in, in bhajans or the reference Krishna of the Gita again is not the object of worship that would be the object of you know Vedanta study uh, it's the Krishna the young baby Krishna and the child Krishna that is the object of uh, veneration of devotion of bhakti in the Krishna tradition so so Vrindavan is the place sacred uh, to Krishna and it's between Delhi and Agra in the old days it would take half a, half a day to get from Delhi to Vrindavan. Now they've built the, the new Yamna Ganga uh, uh, Expressway, so you can be there in two hours. Mm -hmm. So it's changed a lot. Uh, you know, as I say, I knew it when it was pre-modern now. It's nouveau riche. The bourgeoisie from Delhi have come down and bought up all the real estate and built their ashrams. <laughs> so real estate in Vrindavan now is almost the same as Delhi. So it's very, very different. The, the Yamna is completely polluted you know in the old when i was there we would bathe every day mm. we as sadhus we would bathe and uh so i was a sadhu for many years 
and um and then you could do that you could bathe and just you know lay out your cloth and it dry in the sun uh, now you know you know barely you just grab you just put your hand in and sprinkle three drops on your head out of respect it's so polluted so things have changed and but, um, but, but it really is the heartland for this tradition of krishna devotion where there are devotees just constantly chanting and singing the names of krishna and radha uh, it's it's a place uh, I spent some time in Vrindavan during my early travels in India as well, when I was a uh, as you said uh, somewhere between a hippie and a sadhu as well. Yeah, uh, I actually spent some time at the um, at the Jiva Institute, with okay. which I believe you 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 have some connections to with um, Satya Narayana Dasa there. Yes, well we have the same guru. Uh, our guru was a Vrindavan Baba. Haridas Shastri, who runs a huge Goshala. has mm. uh, two, two a Goshala and a, and, a, and a Bullshala as well. So we are fellow disciples of Haridas Shastri. So yes, uh, I, I myself usually stay in the Goshala, but uh, Sachinarayan Babaji has, a, has an institute and uh, we've arranged to, you know, we've arranged tours there. We've also had Rutgers uh, 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 winter sessions there. So it's a good place. Yeah, um, I remember when I was there actually seeing a flyer on the wall for uh, an, a Rutgers pilgrimage to Vrindavan led by uh, Professor Edwin Bryant. <laughs> uh, yeah, although I never led one. I just kind of over, uh, oversaw it. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. I didn't realize you shared a guru, your guru bias. Yes. So yeah, did, now, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, I, I know it's personal, but did, did you meet your guru on that first trip back in... No, 70s, no, not or, at all. Um, no. no, that I, I didn't, and I, I met him many years later. So not on the first trip. Okay. Um, yeah. But but early for early years, you were drawn to this tradition. Well, I wasn't particularly drawn to the Krishna tradition, as I said. I I was actually studying Buddhism and Dharamsala, but I my, I I wasn't. I I knew I wasn't a Buddhist. I I you know it, it didn't um, I didn't connect with Buddhism. But I didn't really have a, a, much of a plan, and um, you know, I hadn't really educated myself very well before I went for India. I just sort of hit the road um, and hitchhiked. You know, that was back in the in the seventies. It was the you know post late hippie period. So it was you know we'd we'd been hitchhiking all over Europe and all over the place. So it wasn't a just an extension, a more dramatic extension of that, and. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I was probably one of the very, literally, not rhetorically, one of the very last to make the overland trail because when I was in Tehran, Tehran was the last place you could make some money. You could teach English as a foreign language. And when I was there, the Shah was thrown out, thrown out three days before and there was a three-month period before Khomeini came. And I was there that whole three months and it was curfew every night. And then somehow or other got, got out without really getting paid. And then, and then, and then through Afghanistan, and then the, the Russian-Afghan war started. So that overland trail is was closed since then, and, and I, don't, I don't see how that's going to be open in the foreseeable future. With with, the, with you know with the you know with the hostility to the West that we see in 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 in, in Iran and Afghanistan, you know, mm. perhaps that will change. It would be nice to think it will change. But um, since that time, the overland trail pretty much uh, closed down. So uh, yeah, so one of the last to do that, and then in, through Pakistan and 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 then into India. Wow. So Dharamsala was up in the north, and you know I didn't really know much about Buddhism either, but 
made sense, you know, I was on a spiritual quest, so that was an obvious place to start. So, so like, as I said, I ended up by accident in Vrindavan, but uh, yes, it captured my heart. Mm. So those early, early experiences, at some point you, you run out of money, I imagine, as I did, and you, you come back west and uh, you figure out what you want to do with your life, right? Yeah, I'd been living in ashrams and I'd become a little bit um, disillusioned, you know, with ashram life because obviously the, the mind follows one wherever one, you know, a life in an ashram could be just as political uh, in, in more, more, more uh, glaring ways than, than, um, than outside. So I spent some time living in ashram type situations and I actually got very, the reason I came to the West, I came back, I'd actually made a vow. I was never going back to the, to the West. Mm. At that time, I, you know, as I say, there, were, there was no need for, for visas for British people, but I got very, uh, I got tubercular emphysema, I got very, very sick. So then my dad, who hadn't seen me for like um, a few years, you know, just sort of, you know, begged me and urged me to come back and, and, and uh, get medical attention. So that's how I ended up going back to the West. And then, mm. and then I was in New York City. So and my original plan was to, to get a certificate teaching English as a foreign language and then uh, teach in the Middle East for like three months of the year, Bahrain. And I'd, I'd, I'd done that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And and then live in India for the for nine months, uh, but with some with some income, so I could actually live independently, you know, with with um, and um, and then I was just happened to be in New York City, so I thought, okay, well, to get the good teaching jobs, you had to have a BA. I didn't even have a BA. I hadn't finished. Um, I hadn't finished university. I just sort of hit the road after school, mm. and I did one year, and then. Um, and then I just so I thought, well, like, let me get it in Sanskrit. I'd studied, you know, I'd studied, you know, Hindi and Sanskrit in India. So I thought, let me get a degree in Sanskrit, and then and then get this the teaching English certificate. Um, and once I started, uh, that time there was money for FLAS foreign language area scholarships. India had a, I think it owed the American government a bunch of money, and so they were repaying it somehow through these language grants. And so I got that. That pretty much funded my my education and I, I you know the doors just kept opening and i hadn't thought about an academic uh career at all it just it just all fell on my lap in the same way as vrindavan did so you know obviously um doctors might like to think that ishwar makes arrangements and ishwar brings one to wherever one is destined to go such as vrindavan in my case but um other than that, it, it all all the doors open, and I just kept, I kept uh, walking through them. There was no reason not to. So you were studying at Columbia University, yeah. and did you continue to return to India then to study Sanskrit uh, as you went on with your studies through grad school? Well, not so much when I was a student because I didn't have any money. You know, I was just—I mean, I had—I had the. Scholarships paid for my education and a little bit over, but not enough to sort of afford tickets to, to India. So there was a little bit of a hiatus. When I mean, I did. I went a couple of times. I went to you know, I went for a year. I got a, I got a fellowship to go for a year, and another and some you know summer. I got several summer. Yeah, I did. I guess I did. I kept. I, mm-hmm. I got these flash fellowships in the summer, just to keep studying Hindi in Varanasi. But then there was a bit of but but then there was a bit of a gap. But then after that, once I, I was established in in academia, I would go every year, 
and then you know if I had a if I had a sabbatical, I would go for for uh, a semester or, or, or like that. So now because of COVID, I haven't been these last this summer and, and last summer. But otherwise, I've been going every year for you know for many years now. So your your early work, which I believe, tell me if I'm wrong, stemmed from your dissertation research at at Columbia was on the Indo-Aryan debates, yeah. migration, yeah. invasion, the whole Indus Valley civilization, you know, discourse. That's a, that's a, an ambitious, big topic to take on a, as a PhD it was ambitious student. And, ambitious and slightly foolhardy because... How, you know, how, did, how did your interests in that come about? Or, you know, or tell me a little bit about, you know, the nature of that project. Well, you know, I... I'd, my exposure to Hinduism had been through with traditional pundits and in, in ashram, you know, type settings at Brindavan. So, you know, so I had the, <laughs> I had a more of a traditional sense of history. So when I came to academe and, 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 and encountered the, obviously the, the way that Western Indologists had reconstructed early Indian history, I, I was intrigued. It was different. So I thought, well, let me explore this and see how solid the foundations of some of these uh, of these of the way that history was reconstructed by Western Indologists, see how f- solid the foundations were. So little did I realize, of course, the project like that involved Indo-European linguistics, as, as you say, Indus Valley, uh, Indus, the, the archaeology of the Indus Valley, not just the Indus Valley, you know, the Central Asia. And and I had no real advisors. There was no one in Colombia who was an expert in Indo-European or, or archaeology. So I really winged it. Mm-hmm. But somehow or other, I, I, I just by intense, just reading everything and you know how it is. And then following up every, every reference in the bibliography, I put it together. And then, um, then I got this position at Harvard for three years. It was just a lectureship. Right. I don't know how that happened. That, that also fell in my lap. But there was Michael Witzel there, who was a sort of arch anti you know, you know, a lot of the Indian scholars, and I, you know, spent a year in India going around and interviewing the Indian historians. They all rejected the idea of uh, an of an Aryan, what we now call migration, not so much uh, invasion anymore. And Witzel was so I was fairly pro that point of view. The 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 the, the Indian, well, you can't say Indian, but the sort of the idea that the um, the Indo Aryans were indigenous. So my initial dissertation was very. Uh, was very, uh, I was taking a defensive start of stance on that point of view. Then I spent th- three years in, in, in Harvard and, 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 and Michael Witzel was there. And he, of course, is adamantly, all his scholarship essentially is tracing the incursion of the Indo-Aryan dialects into India and across India. So I sat with him every night. He was very kind. Mm. Um, and we went over my dissertation with a toothpick mm. if that's the right metaphor and and i'm very grateful to him because it, it, it became a much more balanced um from the dissertation to the book became much more balanced and, and, and essentially just presenting the different points of view but it, your question is how did i get him uh, why was i in, interested in the first place because i i came out of a traditional way of thinking after you know it's a very young you know, young person in india and then living all that time with pundits, naturally you walk away with those kinds of samskaras. And then you encounter academe, which is very different, as you know, a way of configuring history and, and so forth. And 
and and the development of you know of of religion, right? So in academia, it's more historical and contextual and developmental, um, which is different from from the traditional way of thinking, where um, there is it isn't chronological. There's not chronological thinking so much. So anyway, um, that's how it all came to be. Seth, very long long winded response to your question. Yeah. Uh... Lots of thoughts, but um, I think in, in many ways, as I read, a lot of your work has been working to find this balance, this tension between the kind of Western Indological methodologies and approach uh, and the more traditional Indian parampara approaches, uh, whether we're looking at this question of Indo-Aryan uh, migration uh, or yoga or bhakti. Uh, so, so how did um, how did your interest in yoga develop? You know, how did many years later you end up uh, doing this uh, translation uh, and commentary, really, on the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali? Well, again, that was that wasn't something that was planned. I, you know, the the, the biggest episodes of my life have, have never been planned. It's quite interesting. When I was at Harvard. Um, I get a call from Patricia Walden's yoga studio um, mm-hmm. in, she's an Iyengar senior, probably the senior most Iyengar teacher in, in the States. And she's asked, asked me to teach the yoga stu- uh, sutras at her, her studio. And, you know, I was teaching Hindu philosophy. So I was teaching some sutra in the context of that, but, you know, I certainly wasn't an expert in it. And so I, I think I said something like, well, I'm much, I, you know, I know the Gita, you know, I've been studying the Gita for 30 you know, since I was 21. So I, I, and I said, I, I know the Gita better. But anyway, I, start, I can't remember if I started teaching, maybe I started teaching the sutras, but I realized through her, and then she, she would do these big workshops all over the States and sometimes Krishna Das would chant. And uh, she invited me, you know, after I'd been teach, teaching at her studio, she invited me to go with her to some of these big, uh, big events, which were for teachers. For you know, other Iyengar teachers less senior than her, and they started inviting me to teach the sutras and the Gita at their workshops. And so pretty quickly, I realized that's this huge community of you know of yoga practitioners. Of you know, as academics, we might say modern postural yoga uh, practitioners who you know felt they had this connection with the yoga sutras because well, certainly Iyengar. As you know, Guruji Iyengar translated it, Krishnamacharya had uh, a, a relationship with it, it for obvious reasons. I mean, you know, we've all read Singleton and so forth. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sutra. It's a, it's, it's a classical text, pan-Indian text that at least mentions three, three of the three asanas. So I, I, I realized that they had, that they had, it had become canonical, mm-hmm. but yet, but yet they had no idea of the classical commentarial uh, understanding of the uh, of the sutras. So even though it's not my canonical text in my lineage, it's not even barely. It's just sort of, you know, it's it's, it's just one of the one of the classical sutras, but it's not studied. I I I, I just became inspired to um, to write a commentary and bring the the voices of the main. Uh, the main, you know, uh, Vyas and Vachaspati, the main commentators, into the into the sort of yoga world, and that was the 
that was the reason I did it. And that was the inspiration. It was great because I, 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 I learned so much about the nature of the mind, the nature of some scars. I mean, I, I feel I, I benefited myself profoundly from that intense study, you know, it took several years, uh, two or three years. Uh, um, and, um, and, 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 you know, and that was a contribution. Uh, or, so I like to thank a little contribution to the, to the world of modern yoga. Absolutely. I think, I mean, one of the real strengths of this book, uh, which I, I, I have used so much in my own teaching and, and research uh, and, and, and practice even, uh, the strength is, I think, not only the clarity of the translation, but the way that you've brought into English for general readers, um, opening up this Sanskrit commentarial tradition, as you just mentioned. We have a number of these uh, traditional commentaries on the sutras that most people have no exposure to or access to unless you've studied Sanskrit for many, many years. Uh, and to see that conversation and debate, the ways in which different sutras are interpreted differently uh, from different lenses of Vedanta, for example, is extremely important to developing a more informed view, a more nuanced view of, of, uh, of your own interpretation of yoga philosophy. Um, and I also think you, you've done a really good job of mentioning you know, moments where if you disagree with the commentator, you'll you'll make note. Hey, I, I'm taking this particular reading here, and that kind of transparency, I think, is just is very important today. I think when we're when we're translating these texts, especially a sutra text, right? That doesn't always have one specific clear translation that where, where context needs to be filled in. Sure. Although it's much, it, although nothing compared to Vedanta Sutra, the problems <laughs> with that, I mean, that is massively uh, dependent on very, very differing um, commentarial traditions, as you know well, Seth. Yeah, and, uh, and it's a much, you, yes. much longer text. How, how, how big is the, the it's, it's Vedanta Is it 500 sutra? and change, um, mm -hmm. Vedanta Sutra? It's not, but I mean, the problem is, it's, it's, first of all, it's much more cryptic. And that's number one the sutras themselves are more cryptic than the yoga sutras. And number two, we, we know the massive, I mean, they, how, how much more difference can you get between a Shankara and a Ramanuja, right? A, sh mm -hmm. a Shankara who says the world, the world doesn't ultimately exist. The individuality ultimately doesn't exist. And, and, and all, Brahman, all that really is, all that is really ultimately uh, true is Brahman between that and, you know, a Ramanuja, where not only it, it, but the world is real, the souls are eternally individu individualized, and Brahman is, per, is a personal being. I mean, <laughs> well, well, I, I mean it really, is, it's like, it, that's a completely like two, two completely different poles on the spectrum. So, yeah, that's, that's the issue with Vedanta. And, and, that, and then that, that spills over into the Gita. So even though the Gita, the shlokas are, you know, they're shlokas, so they're much more easy to, to understand. But yet, um, when filtered as they would be traditionally, and they still are, you know, still are, commentaries are still coming out of these traditions. Um, but w w when filtered through the commentaries, then we have this huge, and that's, that's actually my, 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 what I'm working on now. Well, before before we before we get yeah. to that, because oh, I do want to ask yes. you, ask you about that, yeah. just staying with Patanjali and yes. the sutras for a minute. But speaking of Vedanta, I mean, I think 
one of the problems, you know, that I, I became acutely aware of in the modern yoga world when, when the, the yoga sutras are taught, say, in a yoga teacher training context or um, just even as those teachings filter in to the, the, the language and the kind of idioms of, of modern yoga, Patanjali is so often read or, or kind of rendered through a non-dualist Advaita Vedanta yeah. lens. It is. And if you yeah. read B.K.S. Iyengar's translation, just for example, you, know, you talked about this relationship with Patricia Walden in the Iyengar world where this kind of all started. He, he's very much reading uh, this attainment of Purusha as, you know, kind of this non-dual experience of Atman and Brahman. Um, how, how do we, how do we untangle, yeah. how do we untangle kind of that philosophical problem uh, was that an issue when you were teaching at these Iyengar studios? Is it something that you noticed as well? Um, I just found them completely uninformed, and I don't mean that in a negative way. They they were eager, but they just Guruji Iyengar wasn't. It didn't transmit. I'm it, I'm interested that you you think that you say that he takes an Advaita position because I I I I can't say I've read him very thoroughly, but mm. I've read Tree on Yoga and I've read the uh, light, light on Yoga. Uh, clearly he's guiding, he's, you know, he's guiding the students towards an, an experience of Purusha, of consciousness, but I'm not sure that he would be, that I've read him uh, as an Advaitin in the sense that the world isn't real and so forth. Fair enough. Maybe um, more uh, Ramanuja. Yeah, well, Ramanuja, of course. Uh, yeah. But but he hasn't yes but he hasn't really transmitted you know the Vishishtad weight this you know which is very theistic and 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 so forth. Um, but uh, my impression understanding if you want to talk about Guruji and I met him once and I asked him directly uh, and um, is that you know in the beginning when he went was in London he was told specifically not to speak about religion uh, and that, you know so he was uh, you know I think that was the fifties. So I, I feel he catered things very much for his students and he didn't bring Vedanta into it at all or very, or very little. Or if he did, he re-couched it in, in language that his students could, could relate to. Um, and I met him one time and when he came in his last tour and Patricia Walden invited me up and I'd always asked her to ask these three questions, Guruji Iyengar, and, and she, you know, she never did because she always felt, I guess, a little... You know, she was a student and she had that kind of guru bhav. Mm. But I said to him, you know, Guruji, um, you know, you, you in the old in the old pictures, you were you wear the sacred clay of Ramanuja. Do you still identify with that, with that tradition and with that philosophy? He said yes, in, instantly, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I said, and well, in that tradition, Guruji, Ishwar is Narayana. Is that still is that is that Ishwar for you? And he goes, yes. And he you know said it with emotion. I can feel this emotion just just saying Narayana like that. Mm. And then I said to him, well, Guruji, I do a lot of you know workshops in your community. Do you want me to teach the Ramanuja, especially with the Gita? Mm. When I do that anyway, because I think Ramanuja is closest anyway to to the to the text. Do you want me to teach the Ramanuja Siddhanta? And he said, yes, but you should eat Shankara and everything. And it's, you know, which was a, which a very nice answer. But he was a Sri Vaishnava and, and he remained that, that way to, to the end. And I know from just anecdotal stories, you know, when he was when he was in his private chambers, you know, he would do, be doing pujas to Narayana and to uh, very much. And, I, and in fact, I know 
a, a Krishna Bhakta who went with him to Orissa and Jagannath Puri, and he, he was a total Vaishnava in his own in his own space. Um, but your question is, uh, so I think it's just a matter of information, um, Seth, and, and and I and I feel like what we need is a Gita with just to do exactly. We don't, you know, what what was done for the Yoga Sutras or Yoga Sutras was bringing the traditional commentaries, and we don't have much difference of opinion. I mean, there's quibbles between Vachas, you know, with Vigyana Bhikshu, okay, everybody says he brings in a bit of Vedanta. I don't find that, it, 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 maybe he does, but it doesn't it doesn't violate the, the basic metaphysics of, you know, Purusha Prakriti. But what I think we need is a, uh, a commentary on the Gita, uh, presenting each verse from the Advaita point of view, and then from the the not waiter, but for want of a better, 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 you know, term, the, you know, the more du- the more dualist s- schools, so that people can see a how what liberties are being taken. B they can make up their own informed decision as we, you know, what 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 is closer to the to the text, um, you know, what is closer to the word for word meanings of the text. So that's something i think that so it's a matter of information and that's that's what we do that's what you're doing with your with this program with this this you put together this yoga studies this is what you're doing you're you know we're in, informed consumers now it's not the 60s and the 70s where you know people have been doing various kinds of yogas for half a century and and reading and you know and and getting better informed and from your side you've put together these these workshops and brought specialists in to to dialogue and transmit these these various lineages and teachings to the yoga world, and you know and 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 this commentary is to be written appropriate, just like all previous commentators, appropriate for our day and age. In the case of the Gita, um, I don't you know I don't think we need any more sectarian commentaries, but what would be useful, it seems to me, is a commentary you know from both sides of the fence and of course there are nuances on both sides of the fence but in terms of the dualist non-dualist so that's 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 something that i that um, i think needs to be done yeah that that's going to be a much larger book project uh, than the sutras if you're going to be bringing out shankara ramanuja madhva uh, maybe maybe the krishna bhakti tradition uh so how is that going to be a multi-volume set probably yeah, three volumes. I'm going to guess. Wow! And yeah. how far along into that project are you now? Well, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm just on the third chapter. I, I'm not rushing it, uh, Seth. I'm, you know, sure. 64, and I, I'm seeing it's, it's also a sadhana. I'm seeing it more now. I don't need to publish or anything like that at this stage of the game, mm. and um, so I, I'll take it into my retirement, and that will be my my going away present to. To, your uh, uh, your vana vana prasta, uh, vana prasta, you know, beautiful way of drawing, you know, and um, absorbing the mind and in, in the in these traditions, absolutely. Yeah. So it will take a few years, but what I might do is just put out a chapter up at a time on my website or something mm. like that, you know, for for free. I mean, we don't, you know, mm. well, but whatever. I haven't thought it through. Sure, sure. I guess my point about Vedanta, and I think this would will be highlighted in. In, well, I think it's highlighted in your sutras book, but I think even more so in the Gita book with yeah. its commentaries, is that, you know, we want to try to understand a text within its own 
philosophical system and milieu and context yeah. as much as possible without imposing, you know, a different system onto it. Noting yeah. if and when commentators are doing that, bringing kind of a different philosophical or theological lens to bear. And I just think, you know, over the last thousand years or so, forget even just the modern period, but there's been this tendency to Vedanticize the Sankhya Yoga, you know, of, of Patanjali. And that, that kind of original, I, I think, dualism of the Purusha Prakriti metaphysics does get lost or collapsed into a monistic um, Brahman uh, yeah. view. Uh, and that's okay, but I think we should be, you know, at least aware that that's sometimes being imposed onto Patanjali. But if we take the text seriously on its own words, uh, I don't think that that's what Patanjali was advocating. Uh, do you? Well, there's absolutely no question. I mean, where, where, where does he ever say that the property is unreal? Nor does he say that, you know, fine, the Svarupa may be infinite in, in potential, but that doesn't mean that it loses its individuality. I agree. Uh, um, I, well, in the modern period, it's, it's understandable because of the spread of neo neo Advaita, mm. you know, which which comes from Vivekananda, and you know that's tied in with the story of Hindu nationalism and and so forth. So that that's a story unto itself. Right. Um, so that's uh, understandable, um, but uh, um, but you know, I Vikyana Bhikshu was clearly a Vaishnava. Mm. So he was uh, he was definitely doing the doing the, the opposite. He was he was fleshing out the theistic element. Vachaspati, of course, is famous as a, you know is wearing so many different hats. Um, but even 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 Shankara is not. If it's the same Shankara, and this, of course, is a, it, it, you know is one of those unanswerable questions. Mm -hmm. But he's not the Shankara, the Advaiting. And Paul Hacker even goes so far as to say maybe this was Shankara before he became an Advaiting, because he's dualistic in his commentary. Do you mean the so the, the, you, yeah. the Patanjali the, Yoga Shastra, the Vivarana? This this Vivarana. commentary, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It's not. There's nothing Advaiting in that at all. It's very dualistic. So either he's being a really honest exegete or it's not the shankara or it's not the shankara or you know you know if you want to go with hacker it was the early shankara but the tradition has always been dualistic it's only been the modern period i don't think vachaspati was necessarily a dwaita sizing the text that i that i can recall but i mean nowhere does he say the world is unreal or anything like that but it's the it's neo vedanta i think it starts probably with raj with vivekananda and his raja yoga and his appropriation of mm -hmm. the Yoga Sutra, you know, obviously for his purposes and for his day and day and age, and also because monism is more palatable to Western mysticism mm. than, you know, Vishnu with four arms as a supreme godhead, as Yahweh, as the, you know, the, the, you know, as Jehovah sitting on the golden throne. It's, it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it takes a bit of a leap <laughs> mm -hmm. for uh, anyone that's coming out of an Abrahamic tradition of any sort. So clearly, monism could sort of relegate all of that to a, to a lower level of Yabaharika. You know, so it's more conducive to, you know, to nationalism, to communication. Even now, at Rutgers, you know, I sat in on a seminar on mysticism. And it's like they know nothing about the, the, the bhakti mystical experience and visions of Ishwar. It's all monistic, right, right? Just, you know, a year and a half ago. So that's part of my, uh, in fact, I'm... Anyway, I'm working on that as well. Mm. But um, I'm writing a book called In Defense of a God with Form, 
Mm. Which basically tries to show this aversion to to God having a form going back to, you know, to obviously uh, Aristotle and Plato, which becomes absorbed into Aquinas and 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 Augustine and the early great, you know, the church theologians, and then and, and, and then sort of and then sort of pervades all later Christianity and Western philosophy, and then and still affects the way even well intent, intended and very open-minded, you know, people sitting in our yoga studios in the 21st century, where they think about these forms, these deities. Well, before, isn't know, it interesting then that, you know, Patanjali includes teachings on God or Ishvara in his text, but explicitly does not include God with form or Saguna. Uh, Ishvara is uh, far less personal Right than than the Krishna of the Bhagavata Purana, let's say, as we're going of, to get to shortly. Yes, yeah. I think uh, sutras do teach some bhakti. I think there's there is there's some bhakti in there, but it, but it's certainly a very different flavor, a more intellectual bhakti, even or maybe maybe formless meditative bhakti. We should say. Um, well, you know, they, that's an interesting thing that, we, you know, we can speculate about, but we have to remember what is Patanjali's project, right? It's Chitta Vritti Narodaha. He's not about, he's not going to talk about Bhakti or, or Ayurveda or astronomy or anything else. So he brings in Ishvara to the degree, to the extent that Ishvara is relevant to that project. And how is Ishvara relevant to that project? Well, Tasyavachika Pranavaha Tajapa. That you the tadarta bhavanam. So he, he comes. So he comes in the form om, and you can niroda her the mind on that sound om in 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 japa. But but then he says tadarta bhavanam, keeping its meaning in mind. Now that starts to sound like a, a mild sort of devotional hint. And then elsewhere he said, you know, ishra pranidana samadhi siddhi, mm-hmm. ishra can whatever that means. Mm-hmm. So that's all that's relevant. So he's not, his project isn't at a, you know, at a bhakti anushasanam, which is the first sutra of the bhakti sutras. So, uh, so we don't know what Patanjali's um, uh, orientations were. We do know that Ishvara at that time, and so much nonsense has been written, if I may say so, trying to say that Ishvara is some kind of a paradigmatic yogi, and that, you, know, you know, by people who should know better. We can't extract the term Ishvara and isolated it potentially, extract it from the larger context of what Ishra means in the Gita and the Mahabharata, the Isha in the Upanishads and all of the Puranas, the larger context, Ishra meant, Ishvara meant, you know, Shiva, Krishna, at that time in third century or whenever we want to place the text, it meant, it meant Krishna and Shiva and Vishnu. So we don't know what his orientations were. We do, we do you know, so I, I, anyway, I've written about that, um, but um but his, but I think it's important to, to we can't say that you, you know he's kept his eye on the on the ball. It's only twelve hundred words, mm. tiny little text. So he's kept his eye on the ball with great um, with great focus, and that's Chittavritinaroda. And and if anything, the information he gives about Ishvara, you know, it's a tiny bit super superfluous, right? That it's a, you know, Guru Purvesham sure. and you know, Nirati, you know, Shayam, Sarvagnya. So in a sense, you know, if everything he says there can be connected with what Krishna says in the Gita and what Shiva says in the Shvetashvatara, everything that I'm Om, that I'm the Guru of the ancients, 
that sure. I am supremely omniscient. So we have to keep in mind when Patanjali's is he, writing these sutras for a read, well, an audience that would be fully aware of what Ishvara means in the broader context. So he doesn't say have to say anything more than that. He's all all he's doing is saying, well, look, Ishvara can be part of this Chittavriti Narodha project. How? Right, not through all these other processes of bhakti like pilgrimage and kirtan and puja not through those that's not patanjali's interest but he can but 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 he can be marshaled in in the form of chapa which sure, is one of the yeah. yeah he says ishvara pranidhanat va is it he does or or you can attain this nirodaha yes. through ishvara yeah. pranidhana what is yeah. that it's japa on the pranava yeah. on om here's yeah. the and then actually so, I mean, you're preaching to the choir with me. <laughs> I mean, I tend to agree with what you're saying. I think let's locate the term in this broader context. Yeah. I think Patanjali is still, he's, he's a real wordsmith. He's extremely specific with what he's doing yeah. with these words. I think yeah. he is intentionally leaving it non-sectarian, right? He's not saying that so, it's yeah. Vishnu yeah. or Shiva. And yeah. in that way, it allows the text to be appropriated or used by you know any of these traditions. Um, Absolutely, but but for somebody as you said who's so terse with words, only yeah. 195 sutras. You actually get yeah. quite a few sutras that are devoted to Ishvara uh, in the first pada, and then we see it again in the um, in the sadhana pada, in as part of Ashtanga yoga, as Kriya yoga as well, for that matter. Yeah, but and also when he gives a list of ob- objects of alamban. Right, you know, at the be- in the first chapter, right, they g- he gives six options, yeah, like prana and you know, the, and and this sort of subtle sense, you know, the, the sun- subtle sense of smell and like that. Ishra's first on the list, and we know in Indian, you know, lists the, the first yeah. carries the most weight, and he gives six or seven verses to Ishra, yeah. and then all the other options, just one sutra, one one, they get one each, and at the end he says yata just fix your mind on whatever you want. But clearly he's prioritizing um, Ishvara, but I agree with you. He's doing it in a very elegant way, just non-dogmatic. And remember, you've got, uh, you know, you've got early Buddhists there. You've got early Jains. You have people in the forest. If we can, if we can caricaturize, you know, his kind of yoga, we know from the epics and the Puranas, the, the yogis are often located in the forest. So that kind of, you know, nivriti, renouncing the, the world type yoga, um, is uh, is um, is um, I've lost my train of thought now. Where did I start off? With well, that? well, this kind of but what <laughs> so I want the age of sixty four, uh, you're allowed to do that. What I want to get us to is talking about you're talking about this book that you're writing, God with Form, yeah. and I think that gets us yeah. into Krishna and the and the Bhakti and Bhagavata tradition because it still, while we can acknowledge that there there is a place for Ishvara in the Patanjali yoga tradition, yeah. it's it's not given the primacy and the flavor and the sophistication uh, that the later bhakti traditions will will do. So, sure. you know, if, if this is a, a nirodaha samadhi, this stilling of the fluctuations of the mind, and Ishvara is in some ways a pragmatic, you know, a, a means to that end, a, you know, a, a, an ideal object of, of, of of focusing the mind single-pointedly, um, among other options, the goal, as you as you've stated, you know, uh, many places in in this book and elsewhere, the goal for Patanjali is not some 
union or experience no. of Krishna. But you know, um, Seth, it, 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 it does leave the intriguing question of what's the relationship, of course, he doesn't answer this, but, it, it, but you know, between the Sarupa Avastitaha, uh, successful, the Siddha, and the Ishvara, who is eternal, and he's a guru, he's a personal being, right? He, he's a guru, Purvesham, right? He, so that means he's, t- he's a teacher. So, he has a, so there must be some kind of personality right. involved with a being that he's a Purusha Vishesha, right? So it's not a Dvaita Vedanta. He's a, he's a Purusha Vishesha. Obviously, the Gita will say Param Purusha and so forth. So it does leave open this question, which doesn't get resolved, as to well, what is the is there a relationship or what is it between the liberated, the, the Siddha and this eternal Ishvara who is, be, is beyond Klesha and Karma, never been affected, right? So this notion that he was some yogi that made it out, I don't know where that goes back to, that go back to Eliade or somebody. He's never been, it's not a yogi that made it out of samsara because he, he's never been affected, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the commentators are very clear on this. They, they say he's not like Kapila or the Buddha. So, um, so I, I, I don't think the commentators, when they take Ishvara to be the Ishvara of greater Hinduism, I don't think they're taking liberties at all. I think they're just articulating what Patanjali, because of terseness, sutraic ter- 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 terseness, is taken for granted. But um, go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, 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 please. Um, this is the good stuff. So... Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I agree. Patanjali doesn't say. Uh, I, I think it's quite clear that you know that Kaivalya, you know, which is his preferred term for the ultimate soteriological goal or state, this independence, this aloneness of 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 the seer yeah. of the purusha resting in its in its uh, svarupa, this svarupa mm-hmm. pratishta, which we begin and end the text with. Mm-hmm. Uh, even embedded in that word kaivalya, there is this kind of unto itselfness, this alone in independence that suggests something quite different. I think than the absolutely the reciprocity but, and the relationship that is, uh, you know, sure. so important, right, for for devotion. Absolutely, and and um, and the svarupa okay, is the same is more or less synonymous with kaivalya because it's svarupa. Mm. Now, what the Bhagavatam takes the position, it doesn't reject that. It takes the position that they're, that they're, that sure, you can spend all eternity in your Svarupi Vastanam, but that there is an eternal other type, other being who is ontologically distinct and supreme and Uttama and so forth. And so what we find in the Bhagavatam is, the, is that there are Svarupa Avastitaha sages like Shuka, and even Vyas is, pres- is depicted that way in the, first, in the opening chapters. And, and Ibharat and all of these stories, that they've, they've, they've attained a Sarupa Vastanam experience, but they, they, don't, they don't linger there. They're not in-, in fact, they're not even interested in that. In fact, there's even a verse that says that's like hell for the Bhakta, because it is a verse in the Bhagavatam. It's like hell. I wrote a paper with that, you know, the, you know liberation is hell for the for the Bhagavatam. So it, it takes the position that bhakti is 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 of is is so much infinitely more blissful because the supreme being is ontologically infinite and therefore also being a being of such an ananda the ananda inherent in the supreme being is far greater than the ananda inherent in the svarupa which is a spark 
and therefore uh, and therefore the bliss that comes from a a relationship between two beings far surpasses the bliss inherent in the Atman. And so the paradigmatic role models of the Bhagavatam, they're all, they've all realized beings in the sense of Swarupe Avastitaha. They've had that Avastana, they've had that experience, but they don't remain in that experience. They reconnect with their minds and their ears and their senses so they can absorb their minds and, and their ears and their senses in, in thinking and contemplating the divine Bhagavan. And the experience of that for them eclipses anything that they were experiencing when they were in their Nirodhitaha states. So that's an interesting message. It doesn't reject it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't reject uh, the Patanjalian option, which is essentially the option of Sankhya and Nyaya. Mm -hmm. Although Nyaya, of course, is a little bit different because they don't accept um, they don't accept shit. But but basically, that Kevalya experience, right, which is understood differently. But that's the experience of that's the grand finale for Sankhya, for Yoga, for Nyaya, for Advaita Vedanta in its own way. That. The Bhagavatam doesn't reject, but simply is not interested in it, and its role models are not interested in it. But they're all not in, not they're not not interested because you know they've taken some other path. No, they've attained that state, and have kept going on a larger journey to a being beyond their own Swarupa. They're interested in the Rupa of Bhagavan. <laughs> so this this upcoming course that you're going to be teaching is all about just this the the bhakti yoga the tales and teachings uh locating the yoga within this great text the bhagavata purana so you know most listeners uh certainly have have, have studied to some degree the yoga sutra of patanjali probably the gita what is the bhagavata purana how how do we locate its yoga in relationship to the yogas of the sutras of the Gita. Well, just for your listeners, I, the workshop has constant because my assumption is that most people taking this workshop are, are, have been schooled in the Yoga Sutras and and have, you know, some awareness of the Gita. So there's constant references. In fact, we even bring up some texts, some primary sources, some pri you know verses from the sutras and the Gita to read together. So the Gita, the, the Bhagavatam is, is, is assuming that the you know, classical yoga pervades it. It, perva it pervades its pages and you know, yamas and niyamas, all, all the language is the same, all of that, samadhi, and, and completely, and, and of course the Gita too. So, that, so it's coming out of that worldview, but it's focusing its attention on the nature of Bhagavan as a being in his own right rather than in Patanjali, Ishvara is Bhagavan. Of course, we, the term isn't there, but for your, for your listeners, Bhagavan and Ishvara, for now, we can say they're more or less that, that synonyms. They just, they just emphasize different, different aspects of the Supreme Being. In Ishvara, the function of Ishvara is, is, is only is twofold. One, as an object of uh, focus, because if you do Chitavriti Narodaha, you have to fix the mind on something. That's the Alambana. So Ishvara can be the Alambana in the form of Om. That's the first function. It's a very functionalist, relate, as you say, very little bhakti, even though Vyas calls it bhakti vishesha, we can call it very as a minimalistic bhakti as you possibly get. But number one, uh, as the object upon which the mind can be focused, and number two, samadhi siddhir, ishvara pranidana, ishvara can bestow samadhi, whatever that means. But ishvara can bestow it, whether that's simply by coming as om, and being the object of the mind's concentration, or whether there's some element of grace 
the commentators will will take that in whatever direction they will. The Gita, of course, is much more assertive. Um, and, you know, Krishna says, I'm Ishra, I'm, you know, Ishra Sarvabhutanam. So he claims that, that role. And, um, and, and Bhakti is clearly, clearly in a number of verses say it's the highest yoga, you know, end of chapter six and beginning of chapter 12 and various places. But you don't get much sense of, of Krishna himself. He's the teacher. He gives this horrific vision to mm -hmm. Arjuna, mm -hmm. a specific battlefield appropriate uh, kind of a virat rupa, mm -hmm. which is is obviously not his. It's not his his supreme form or his. You know, it's just a sort of battlefield appropriate one. So you see that, and it, that terrifies Arjuna, and and you know, uh, so we don't get much of a sense of Krishna as a, a as a being in, in his own right. You see him as the teacher. You see him as as a you see him as God, and he, you know Krishna makes all these claims about him being the source of property and all of that. But the, so the Bhagavatam then sees itself as picking up where the Gita le uh, leaves off. The Gita picks up where the Yoga Sutras leaves off because Krishna says that there were two kinds of yoga, and one got lost. So the the, the, the one that was around still was the Patanjali in yoga, uh, which you see in chapter five and six. And then and Krishna says, well, now I, but there was another one, the action yoga. So in that sense, the Gita is picking up whether, not so much where the Yoga Sutra left off, but it's adding a whole dimension onto the Yoga Sutras. There's two types of yoga, not three or four. Uh, you know, as Vivekananda talks about four yogas, so the Gita itself says there's two yogas. There's the Sankhya and what it calls yoga. So the in that sense, the Gita is then take you know sort of developed you know taking Patanjali and yoga, but then adding this whole act, other component of action. In the world yoga, which can you know take the form of karma yoga or bhakti yoga, and 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 the very end of the Gita, the grand finale is sarva dharman parityagya, you know, give up all dharma and just surrender to me. That doesn't get developed. The Bhagavatam picks up right there. What does that look like? Uh, and, and what does it look like to surrender completely and utterly? The Gita barely gives us any practices of bhakti. You know, it just says fix your mind on me. I mean, there's one verse that mentions kirtan, and then we have the patram pushpam palam toyam, you know, offer me a fruit. Mm. They have a few bits, very, very, you know, minor statements. But Bhagavatam, the entire thing is about the the, the, the processes of, of bhakti in the first nine books, the actual, with, with great stories of the paradigmatic bhaktas who exemplify those processes, and then in the tenth, the tenth is like the jewel, the gem, in, the, in, in, in you know, it's in a quarter of the whole text. Then we get a full disclosure of Bhagavan in his Svarupa, in his Svarupa, and especially in the Brajlila, where he's not doing his, you know, Dharma Samstapanartaya of the Gita, you know, I come to establish, you know, Paritranaya Sadhunam, I come to, not doing none of that, the formal duties of, of Avatar, of reestablishing Dharma, none of that. He comes just to exchange love with his bhakta. So we get that's what the Bhagavatam offers us, a window into what might a loving relationship with Bhagavan for all eternity in the realm of Vaikuntha and Goloka, what might that look like? And there's beautiful stories where Krishna is simply interacting with his mother and the, go, the cowherd boys and beloved gopis, no preaching dharma, none of that. Uh, uh, it, it, that's well a little bit with the gopis <laughs> but <laughs> they send him backing and they say we don't want your time we get lost but um <laughs> but um but that's the i think the, the the unique place of um 
the Bhagavatam in Indian literary tradition. Each, you know, as you know, you know, each text has its little, has its niche, and it's imparting a, a certain worldview, a certain possibility, um, and that's the, and that's the, I think, the defining feature, and that's what's made made the the Bhagavatam probably the most you know most influential text in hinduism i know that sounds like a grandiose statement mm. you, you could probably quantitate quantify that just looking at art and drama and mm-hmm. and, and, and and themes and in and, and dance and in kirtan and architecture certainly over the last thousand years yeah now in indology as you know there's there's been a tendency to uh downplay some of this not only in the bhagavatam but in other puranas uh for various reasons, Puranas being very difficult to date, you know, not knowing if it's composed and in, in, in redacted in various layers, but also looking at it, you know, as as narrative literature, as storytelling, as mythology, and not taking as seriously the didactic teaching sections, the philosophy, the theology of these texts. I, I think something that you've you've done in, in your career, you pushed back again is against this is is to really take these Puranas seriously as, as works of philosophy. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, I, if, and I take it a step further, if you don't mind. Absolutely. They, the Bhagavatam especially, it's very, very, it's completely different from all the other Puranas. It's written by a Kavi. It's exquisite in terms of its Alankara, especially the 10th book. Uh, in terms of its, uh, you know, its of its the use the use of alankara, which is you know a literary ornamentation and uh, you know very field of knowledge unto itself, very different than any other Purana right there. And number two, it's it's Vedantic Sankhya sophistication uh, is 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 particular, but um, so that gets neglected as you say. But what I think is at the root of this, Seth, is an aversion to or in an inability or a unconscious inability or refusal to accept the possibility that these forms are real and therefore i mean the the bhagavata or the puranas are full of claims that devote you know the bhaktas as perceiving they have darshana of shiva or their beloved shiva or you know in case the bhagavatam vishnu or krishna but nowhere does ever say anything is metaphoric or symbolic or or and so forth. So what's it's a kind of it's kind of an intellectual colonialization mm. that the, the 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 claims the texts are making are rather than in the missionary period that would just be you know just this, these are ridiculous and, and 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 you know just fairy stories and irrational. I mean you can't say that anymore because that's obviously not politically correct day and age but you can say something like oh well these are really metaphors and beautiful literary da, da, da. and you, it sounds like you're praising it but what you're really doing is not taking what the text is saying uh, at all it's not accepting it's rejecting what the texts are actually claiming about themselves and what they claim about themselves is that ishura manifests in the world in in infinite wonderful wondrous forms according to the the, the buck, to delight his bhaktas and according to the, the desire of the bhaktas and that they're real and that they're even modern uh, guru figures have claimed to have, have had visions. So that's what I intend to do with this book called In Defense of, of a Godward Form. That's my, it, this is going to be my last intellectual uh, project as opposed to sort of translation work, which is also intellectual, but different kind of intellectuality. This is going to be philosophy, theology, um, 
post-colonial, I mean, it's bringing in, you know, it's going to be a really theoretical uh, tome, mm. uh, with 10 chapters, tracing the aversion to and resistance to the possibility of God having form, uh, which he does, by the way, in the Old Testament, and, but, then, but then showing how Christians, you know, reacted against that around the second century and started appropriating Greek philosophy. I mean, tracing that whole journey and then looking at the at, at, at not just a political correct, okay, we have to accept these, you know, claims, you know, we can, but actually showing, we're going to, the, the grand finale of the book, if, if it all goes well, is showing the philosophical, not theological, philosophical necessity of God having form to, in order to be a complete perfect being, which is a, which is a, a rubric in the, in the philosophy of religion. It's called perfect being theology. So we're not just, you know, excavating neglected views. We're not just showing a history of, of Western bias coming from, or, or rather presupposition coming from the Greek philosophers, but we're also going to take it a step further and show, and show that, or argue, I can't say we'll show, but we'll argue that form is a, a, a not just a, 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 in not material form, such as an under Svarupa and infinite forms, because the objection to form is A, that it's material and therefore that, you know, subject to the defects of materiality and B, that form is a limitation because if, if I'm sitting here, then I'm not sitting over there. So, but showing how these forms are A, not material and B, they have to be infinite in order for, for, for and, and C, that if God has all qualities, right? So Christian theologians talk about omniscience and omnipotence and omnibenevolence. It has to be omni-beautiful. And taking that to its, you know, and especially the Bhagavatam, it's full of, of why all these descriptions of Krishna's lotus eyes and his lotus face and da-da-da, on and on. And it repeats it because it, partly to aid internal meditation, right? Because you have to sort of fix the form in your mind so you can contemplate it internally, but also to stress the idea that God must be beautiful. And the same with Shiva, of course. I mean, I mean we're talking about the Bhagavatam here, but we could, we could apply the same logic to the Shiva Purana. So mm. that's my parting gift to the academic world, <laughs> Seth. I think, I mean, a, a question, you know, that naturally comes up is if, 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 if God is sort of ontologically real in form in these very particular ways that say you know krishna uh you know w with all of these different attributes and characteristics mm -hmm. you know why is that form of god more real than others you know why why is that sort of the ultimate truth capital t uh in relationship to all the other myriad expressions of god with form from from you know world religions let alone india no, none, none, it's not better at all. Who, who, who says that? God, that? I mean, the whole Hindu position is that Ishwara, and certainly Bhagavatam, manifests, you know, to his bhaktas in whatever, whatever way is appropriate, whatever way they request. I mean, look at the Gita. Arjuna asks Krishna. Krishna doesn't show him the form. Arjuna says, I want to see that form of yours. Mm. So Krishna shows it to him. And then Krishna's, and then Arjuna says, oh, it's too much. Go back to your other form. So he goes back to Vishnu. And then he says, oh, can you go back to your two-arm form? So he goes to his two-arm form. <laughs> so right there in the Gita, we have an example of that. And um, so it's not that one form is, uh, is in any way superior or better or, or preeminent. And, and I don't think Hindus would have any problem with the, the the visions of the old testament of course they wouldn't look at all the far-right stuff in hinduism so certainly it's actually christian theologians in the second third century the early church fathers 
that be began to resist literal interpretations of biblical visions and started to introduce sort of symbolic ways of thinking about them. That, that comes from probably the need of the theologians at that time in a very sophisticated Greek, Greek philosophical world where Christians were taken as simpletons right, and, and sort of not very sophisticated. So it probably came from the theologian's dharma, which is to defend a tradition and give it intellectual dignity. So that's when Greek philosophy starts getting incorporated and these forms in the Old Testament start to be interpreted uh, symbolically and metaphorically. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say one is, that, 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 that one should uh, you know, apply that method. So, mm -hmm. So all forms, why, why not? And, 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 and who knows an infinity of forms. So that would mean that whatever we have in our, in the Puranas are a fraction of the possible. Uh, I mean, who would have known the Virat Rupa in the Gita if Arjuna hadn't, you wouldn't, you don't find that in the Puranas. So that the very fact that we even see that horrific form is because Arjuna had to, to request it. So how does all of this relate to yoga within the Bhagavata. So I want to ask you, what is, what is bhakti and what is bhakti yoga? And how do you, are, are those the same in the Bhagavata or, or what is, you know, what is the yoga in, in, in bhakti yoga within this particular text and tradition? Well, as Krishna says in the Gita, manmana bhavamad bhakta, you know, it's, it's a fixing the mind always on Bhagavata, but not necessarily through the Patanjalian method, although that is very much one of the one of the possibilities, and many of the paradigmatic bhaktas in the Bhagavatam are, are sitting on the banks of the river in classical, you know, sort of uh, you know Neroda style and fixing their mind. But they may be fixing it on japa. They may be often they're fixing fixing it on the form, on the visualization, the samskaric murti. The samskaric image of God that, that they've put together from, from the accounts um, of, of God. So it's but so that there is that Nirodaha possibility in bhakti, but there's lots of other ways, active ways like kirtan and pujas and but the, but 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 what what makes it what ties it to Patanjali is that the mind is fixed on one thing, but in the Patanjali method and its bhakti equivalence in the Bhagavatam, it's completely naturally stilled on one that on that one thing. Whereas the Bhagavatam, just like the Gita offers this other possibility, well, the Bhagavatam offers the possibility of fixing it on one thing, but the mind can vritti on as long as it's vritting only on that thing. So it can be contemplating God's stories and the you know, in fact, that's one of the main processes of bhakti in the in the in the Bhagavatam is 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 hearing these stories of Bhagavan. So the mind is active, the ear, the senses are in, are involved of hearing and reciting and thinking and then you know remembering. So it's an active process, but ekata it shares this sort of one oneness of focus with Patanjali. It's just that this, so the difference again is Patanjali, Nirodhana, absolute stillness, and there are bhakti versions of that, but often not just on, 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 on uh, but often on, a, on, a, on the form, the actual mental form. So that's, a, 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 but then the Bhagavatam then uh, offers, just like Krishna offers a, a sort of action, action in the world yoga, the Bhagavatam accepts that, but action in the mind yoga where 
mind is still focused, but only on Bhagavan. Everything is Bhagavan, and anything one does is for Bhagavan. So what is bhakti? A bhakti is a verbal noun, so it's a, it's a, it, it has the function of a verb. Verbs have subjects and objects. So if bhakti is something you do, it's, a set, it's, a, 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 it's action that takes place between the subject, who is the bhakta, who's doing it, and the object, which is Bhagavan, or in the Devi tradition, Bhagavati. So, action, so bhakti is a, a, a set of actions or relationships or, or activity that transpires, whether that's mental meditation, whether that's actual action like pujas and pilgrimages and temple worship and tant- there's lots of, you know, singing and all these, you know, all the aesthetic art forms of India come from this, you know, Bharat Natyam. So, but it's that action, but however, exclusively focused on Bhagavan. So in that sense, it's 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 Nirodaha, but not it, 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 it's not really Nirodaha in the complete stilling of the mind sort of way, but in the absolute focus of the mind on that one Bhagavan. And that's the object. Bhagavan is the object. Bhakti is the verb. And the, and the subject, the performer, the agent of the verb is the bhakta. So, but, so what is bhakti? Relationship between the bhakta and Bhagavan. And... And the, and, and, the, and, the, and the modalities of bhakti are numerous. And the Bhagavatam speaks of nine primary modalities of bhakti, the nine famous, just like Patanjali has his eight limbs. Mm. So bhakti has this sort of standardized, famous eight, uh, nine processes of bhakti, but they're infinite. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, so thank you for that. That's very clear. But one, one reason I'm asking is, you know, sometimes we hear about bhakti yoga as, as a, as its own tradition and bhakti yogis i'm curious just how the bhagavata purana even u- uses the term yoga and yogis or yogins um when it when it's referring to these yogis of your great sages do you think is it is it referring to this more ascetic and patanjali patanjalian um form of, of a classical nirodha yoga and then does it contrast that? Does it use this phrase, bhakti yoga, to talk about this more devotional yoking of the mind, if you will, to Bhagavan in all of these various ways? Just even just the way that the terminology of yoga is used. I'm curious, you know, what, what, what we can say about that. You know, I, I, I'm going to give you a tentative answer, Seth, because I haven't kept my eye, eye, eye out on that. But I want to say at this point that usually when, when, I would I would want to say that it that it seems to me, but I I'm, I'm going to qualify this and I'll think about it and 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 you know in future re- readings of the Bhagavatam, but right now I'm get I, I want to say that when the term yogi is used by itself, it tends to be a jnana yogin, someone seeking the atman, mm-hmm. um, and so you so that is used in that way. And almost um, would you say not pejoratively, but as somebody who is less than the ideal bhakta. Yeah, well, less well, less than in the sense that that person is pursuing a lower truth, or rather, an intermediary truth. That you know, that person is a no. It's, it's very much respected. It's very much mm. um, honoured, as it would be in any Jnana text. But the Bhagavatam wants to say that there is a higher truth beyond the Atman, and that's Bhagavan. And so, therefore, you, without being dismissive. There's no, well, in one or two places, yeah, it does say, <laughs> say it's hell. 
It's emotional as hell. But that, that's being rhetorical, one or two places mm. for the most part. Greatly honored, but it does make a point in a number of its role models of noting that the that Bharata and part they were sitters, they had gone attained the Atita, the Guna Atita. They stayed, mm-hmm. they attained the state beyond the Gunas. Mm-hmm. They had you know, with Shamika, they had attained the fourth state, right? The Turiya of the it uses all the vocabulary, very sophisticated, very well, you know, the Upanishads, everything is pervading the Bhagavatam. Those sages who had attained that state, um, kind of are actually keep going. It's more a sense of they keep going to, uh, you know, because in their quest of, of God. And in, so there is a, so there is this, you know, the Atman is not the full expression of God. It's a spark of God. It's an unksha. It's an unksha, just as it is in the Gita. It's an unksha. It's a spark of God. So it's not an Advaitin text. It's more, you know, Ramanuja, Madhva, you know, 16th century. Of course, they, they take it, the 16th century traditions take it way to another direction. But, but, but the basic metaphysics of the, of the dualism between the Godhead and, and, and of the Atman as being only a, a, a spark, that's very much the Bhagavatam. So, yeah. So, what do they call, what is, so the, so the yogi, I want to say right now, the term yogi and tends to be, as, far as uh, I want to say right now, the sort of forest patanjaliam type mm-hmm. chitta vritti her character, although, although in the Bhagavatam, a lot of those uh, patanjaliam characters are fixing the mind, uh, eroding the mind on Vishnu. Mm. So, the, so this is an interesting question. I'm, I'm going to keep my eye out, eye out now. When the, 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 when the yogi is, because I'm going to read the whole text next semester, actually, with, in a course, so when the term yogi is used, uh, you never have any stories of, of just a yogi doing Atman. It's always somehow the story is connected with Bhagavan. You don't just sort of have some character, you know, some yogi just as Farupa Vastanam and that and that's it. That, that's not that's not the mm. that's not the um, mission of the Bhagavatam. To so even though even those Patanjali yogis the bhaktas, are yeah. bhaktas, they're bhak, yeah. they're bhakta yogins, yeah. but yeah. they're yeah, yeah, they're using they're using Bhagavan as their uh, yeah. alambana, as their object yeah. of devotion. Uh, yes, but, they're, and they're, uh, but, they're, and they, but it doesn't say that they're interested in Svarupa experience necessarily, or that's not stressed so much. And 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 one more thing, Seth. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. I think the term Bhagavata is used more than the term Bhakta. Mm, right. It's not. It's Bhagavata with a small b. So Bhagavata Purana is. It's a, it's Bhagavata can be Bhagavan. You know, Bhagavata, you know, the Purana of Bhagavan, but with, with but it can also refer to the Bhakta. Mm-hmm. So the term for the Bhakta in the Bhagavatam is the Bhagavata, is the Bhag is the Bhagavata. Mm-hmm. The follower. The follower of Bhagavan is the Bhagavata. I now you now I'm thinking about it. I, I can say that fairly confidently. I'm not saying the term bhakta isn't used, but it's mostly Bhagavata. He's a great Bhagavata, you know, King Bharat was a great Bhagavata, mm. Ikshit, great Bhagavata, great devotee of Vishnu. You know, Bhakta, Bhakta, Bhakta may be used, but Bhagavata is, I think, um, a more prominent term. Mm. It's, it's an interesting question to me because today, sometimes in modern Bhakti yoga milieus, I think sometimes the words Bhakti and bhakti yoga are used synonymously 
and I just wonder if there was distinctions within the, the, the texts themselves at this much earlier time where yoga might have meant something or yogi might have meant something more specific. Um, and, and so, you know, an, another question that this kind of brings up, what, what would you say is the general audience of the Bhagavata Purana? Who, who is this text for? Well, we can only speculate about that. And Vyasa in the, in the introduction says it is for those, um, you know, it begins with, you know, Krishna's just left, left the world and who are we going to turn to now? Krishna is not here. And then the sages in the forest and Shukra come. I mean, the text presents itself, you know, Pariksha's fasting to death. And he asks these sort of existential questions. What should a person do at the moment of death? What should we do with the mind? So essentially, you know, it's an, you know, what do we do with human existence? So, but who is the audience? Vyas says it's for, it's written for, you know, non-Brahmins actually, even though it's a highly Brahminical text actually in its philosophy. But he says it's just as he does in the Mahabharata. That it's for you know the the uh, other castes and the and the women and so forth. Um, so that's what it presents itself. I I but clearly it's a very erudite uh, text mm-hmm. uh, set. So it's it's practically speaking, however it presents itself, it's there's, there's even a a, a a verse that the uh, the Bhagavatam is the pariksha of the learned. It's the test, the you know the test of the learned mm-hmm. because of its literary literary uh sophistication and philosophical sophistication but going there back is to a, there is a rich thing. there is a rich uh sanskrit commentarial tradition on this text right well it dwarfs i mean it has a, a, you know well over uh, 84 commentaries mm-hmm. and then and the next purana has only two and that's the vishnu purana mm-hmm. and most puranas have no commentary so when i say that the bhagavatam has been what perhaps the most, I would say, with the Ramayana, most influential text in Hinduism in the sense of affecting drama and poetry and, mm. and so forth. Uh, that's one of the reasons that look at the 84, probably many, many more by now, uh, you know, probably over 90, uh, you know, and that's just in Sanskrit. Forget about Bengali and Oriya and, and all the languages, that would be hundreds. Whereas other Puranas have, well, the Vishnu has two, so and uh, you know that's one reason it's been we can say it's been influential and the other is you know you could probably someone could probably do a phd dissertation just just go to the brooklyn museum and look through their art collection and see how much is krishna i actually did that because i was looking for for a photo for the front cover for a a painting of the front cover it's all krishna lee um you know of course that's northwest and and so forth but going back to your question, you know, is there a difference between bhakti and bhakti yoga? I, 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 nothing's coming to mind. I, I don't, you know, obviously there's different kinds of bhakti, mm-hmm. um, and you know, but again, I have to be careful of not bringing in, you know, 16th century theology here. But the 16th century theologians would say there's, you know, jnana mishrita bhakti, karma mishrita bhakti, you know, there's bhakti with you know desire for stuff right so you pray to ishvara for for material things they would call that karma mishrita and then they and then they spoke about and then they spoke about jnana mishrita which is patanjali right you approach god but not 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 for a relationship with god but because god can give you samadhi they call that jnana mixed with jnana the first one is mixed with karma and they compare that with pure bhakti which is just about loving god and then they also talk, and the theologians also talk about, you know, uh, uh, tamasic bhakti, which is harmful, but it's still bhakti. 
where you're you know, in the sense that it's a relationship between a bhakta and a bhagavad. So there's tamasic bhakti where you might want to destroy your enemy or something. And there's rajasic bhakti, which is desire-laden, and sattvic bhakti. So, so they do talk about these different modalities mm-hmm. of bhakti. But now when they talk about bhakti yoga, I, I want to think right now, and I'll keep an eye out, they're talking more about real, real, you know, bhakti to Bhagavan for the sake of a, a, approaching Bhagavan as the ultimate goal. I would think it probably refers to meditation on Bhagavan. Like, you know, concentrative, concentrative practice uh, on a particular form of, of... Well, not necessarily, though, because Bhakti, Bhakti Yoga has nine, nine different processes, and, and, and they're not all... In fact, none of those nine are actually Japa. But that's Bhakti, right? The nine practices I don't of think Bhakti. I wouldn't, I'm not sure that there is a, a formal distinction like that. Okay, well, that, 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 that gets to my question, yeah. I've never seen in any, any kind of discussion in any of, of the traditional sources that Bhakti... You know, apart from what I said before, that there's somehow there's a difference in bhakti and bhakti yoga. I, mm. it, it, that's not something that um, I, I can f- think of any commentarial mm-hmm. discussion about. Mm. That's interesting. Um, we're, we're starting to wind down, but one thing I did want to ask yeah. you, um, you know, what's one of the unique flavors of the of, of a Purana and the Bhagavata is its storytelling uh, and mm. these incredible tales um, where we get these teachings that flow through. So as we locate yoga in this, in your book and in this course, um, is there a particular story? I know there's, there's many, but maybe a, a favorite of yours where you feel like the teachings of yoga come through in a, in a tale or in a narrative form. Well, they all do, uh, Seth and, and, and the workshop will, uh, obviously I've selected, um, the stories that I feel are the most powerful in terms of imparting yogic wisdom and, and, and the leelas that I feel capture the best sense of Bhagavan uh, as the just lovable and adorable form of God that one can dedicate one's whole life to and just, you know, um, exclusively. So the stories I, uh, that your students will encounter in the workshop will will be be be, be you know my favorites certainly, but I, not, not so much my favorites, but my favorites because I think they they impart the most powerful messages. I've also ch- chosen tales that are not too weird, uh, <laughs> from the point of view of like you know, for example, the incarnation of Varaha, the boar, you know, battling you know, with the earth on his tusks. I mean, I, I didn't. I want to try to keep it a little bit sort of. Um, within a kind of post-enlightenment, you know, mm. frame of uh, possibility. Uh, and also I focused on the yogic stories that connect with the Yoga Sutras because, uh, you know, that's really the canonical text for Western yoga. So I've, I've kept the stories linked with yoga philosophy and the yoga um, kind of prototypes and the Gita. Um, well, what's what's just one example of the of the latter? You don't have to tell the whole story, but just to whet our appetite a little bit, give us a, a window into this world. Uh, uh, what's what, what's sure. kind of one of the tales that kind of talks about uh, that that kind of yoga? Yeah, I, and I realize we're winding down, but could I just before I, could I just also just pick up on what you said? Yeah, for your listeners, that you know, Hindus across the centuries have not studied the yoga sutras mm. that was a preserve for a scholastic elite few in fact it was possibly 
you know, some scholars have argued more or less moribund by the 15th century after Vigyana Bhiksu. Um, so therefore, Hindus, uh, you know, have imbibed their yoga philosophy, not from the Yoga Sutras, not from, uh, not, not from the, uh, the Sutra tradition, which is Brahminical and elite and Sanskritic, but from these stories. So um, we can start with, how, you know, how did the, the Bhagavata even get delivered? It's Parikshit. Close to die in seven days due to a, a an offense, but you know, offense. He had a rajasic moment. He, 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 you know, he's a great bhakta and a great king and a rajarishi, but he had a, a rajasic moment and it's uh, cursed to, to, to die in seven days and he embraces it. And he, you know, you really get a, a sense of the how does a yogi think? You enter into the mindset of a yogi, immediately recognizes its karma. He, he recognizes that, you know, he, he welcomes the. He welcomes it as a way of absolving him from himself from the offense. He, 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 he's, he welcomes it because he, in his heart of hearts, he always wanted to renounce and just dedicate himself to Vishnu. But you know, it was tied up with running a kingdom, <laughs> and so. But now, you know, now he realizes, okay, finally, this is my moment where I can free myself from my attachments. So we get this wonderful sort of insight into the psychology of, of or Maha. Bhagavata. We, we said that Bhagavata is a, a name for a bhakta, but a maha Bhagavata, a great, a great realized. So, so and what does he do? He immediately renounces everything and, and sits in a loincloth on the banks of the Ganga. And he doesn't even want to eat, uh, eat or sleep because he wants nothing to interfere with his nap. Because he, and, he, and he recognizes he's blessed because he knows he's going to die in seven days. Normally people would freak out. He recognizes because he says that normally... Oh, we know we're going to die, but we don't think we're going to die today. Patanji calls it abhinivesha, um, uh, um, right? We, we don't think we're going to die today. We think, okay, in some, in some, in some conceptual future. But he recognizes his blessing that he, he, he knows exactly when he's going to die. So no more playing silly games with the mind that, oh, you won't die today. So he welcomes it all. And just, just, just seeing how he processes and reacts and to his curse, is I think just a wonderfully beautiful story and powerful, powerful yoga philosophy and psychology. Mm. Well, thanks so much for for not only for for the tale, for your generous time today, uh, sharing your your life's work really with us, and uh, we we really look forward to this uh, upcoming course, deep dive into all things bhakti yoga and a close reading of the Bhagavata Purana with Edwin Bryant. So this course will run live from July 5th through August 13th. You can learn more or sign up at yogicstudies.com forward slash YS dash 205. And uh, yeah, just thanks again, Edwin. It's uh, sure, really been a pleasure Seth, to chat this morning. Yeah, and Seth, may I say, you know, thank you to you. Um, and your 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 community, your, your, you know, your, 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 the people that you're you're reaching out to, you know, sh- you know, should know that you that your your mission is 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 a really important one that you're bringing, you know, academic rigor and uh, it, it, and and you're making this these teachings available uh, to the yoga community. It's really time for that, and someone needed to do it, and and you're doing it, and um, so you're to be commended for that. So thank you for giving us a platform for sharing our various lineages. I know you have different um, people coming in, uh, which is wonderful, so that the you know, Western world can actually become informed yogis. 
All right. Well, on that note, thanks to all of our listeners. And uh, thanks, Edwin. We'll, uh, we'll see you soon in the course. And um, we invite uh, everyone to, to join us. So uh, until next time, please uh, take care. Thanks for listening to the Yogic Studies podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or sharing this episode with someone else. Thanks so much, everyone. Until next time, please take care.